Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old-school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 84 of Shut Up and Wrestle with my guest, Kenny McIntosh of Inside the Ropes fame, and we will get to him in just a moment. A few things I'd like to check off the list before we get there. Of course, I wanted to, again, acknowledge everybody's patience. I know I had to change the order of episodes a little bit last week. I'm sure you can understand that I wanted to share with you my interview with Terry Funk from 2019, my memories of Terry Funk, my interactions with him, and just my thoughts about him. And I'm glad uh, that you were able to indulge me in that. The episode's gotten some positive feedback, so I am glad that I made the decision to call it on the fly, as they used to say. And now we are back on our usually regularly scheduled episodes with Kenny coming up soon. I wanted to take note of a couple of other, as if we didn't have enough that happened in losing Terry Funk. Of course, since the last time I recorded, we have also lost... Bray Wyatt, Wyndham Rotunda, which was quite a blow. And I'm sure a lot of us would agree. And even for the old school fans, what somebody like a Bray Wyatt means is a legacy. Bray Wyatt, the grandson of none other than Blackjack Mulligan, the son of Mike Rotunda, IRS, the nephew of Barry Wyndham, a wrestling family, a wrestling dynasty, It's heartbreaking to lose such a promising talent as his. Some of the greatest promos, I would say, of the last 10 years were from Bray Wyatt. He was a natural talent. I know that the creative wasn't always there for him, and I think the creative let him down, but that's not his fault. The talent was there. He was great. He was memorable. He made his mark on the wrestling business, and he will be missed. Also want to mention Abe Jacobs who unfortunately got lost in the shuffle a little bit with Terry Funk, died on the same day as Terry. For those that do not know, Abe Jacobs was at one time the oldest living professional wrestler in the world, best known for his time in the Mid-Atlantic Territory in the Carolinas. He was a wrestler whose career spanned the 60s, 70s, well into the 80s. And yeah, he lived to be 95 years old making him the oldest living pro wrestler at the time. I believe that that distinction now belongs to Cowboy Bob Ellis, who is, I believe, 94 years old. There's also the former world-class announcer Bill Mercer, who is still with us, who is pushing 100 years old. He is the oldest person still living 
who was affiliated with pro wrestling, but Cowboy Bob Ellis, the oldest, to my knowledge, living pro wrestler in the world today. So our thoughts and prayers go out to the friends, family, and fans of Wyndham Rotunda, a.k.a. Bray Wyatt, and Abe Jacobs. I'd also like to express my thanks because also since the last time I recorded, I had an opportunity to take part in the third annual induction weekend for the International Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame. And I had a blast there hanging with Seth Turner, Greg Wachtel, and the rest of the team at the IPWHF. We had a few surprises. We had Mark Henry show up as a surprise inductor to present the Excelsior Award to Dave LaGreca. We had an unforgettable uh, acceptance speech from the Nasty Boys who received uh, a recognition award. And I was able to have some very interesting conversations with people there, including the granddaughters of June Byers. June, an inductee in the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, just as she should be in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. And I vote for her every year. But June's granddaughters were wonderful. They accepted the award and they promised to appear in an upcoming episode of Shut Up and Wrestle. So I can confidently say that they will be on the way. Also want to express my regret for those that attended Cauliflower Alley Club. I was not able to go this year and I was sorry that I didn't get to see you, that I didn't get to talk with all you guys and some of my great friends and colleagues in and around the business. I was not able to attend the reunion this year because it was rescheduled for what is the first week of school. And I hate to tell you guys, but if I have to choose between you and putting my six-year-old son on the school bus for his first day of first grade, I am going to choose my son. So hopefully, Cauliflower Alley will reschedule next year so that it is not coinciding with the first week of school, and I will be able once again with my lovely wife, Jamie, to descend on the city of Las Vegas for a week of fun. Here's hoping that that can happen next year. Now it's time to get to the matter at hand, my conversation with Kenny McIntosh. Now, Kenny is, as you'll see in our discussion here, Kenny is kind of uh, a renaissance man. He really is a force of nature behind the phenomenon known as Inside the Ropes, which is a multifaceted enterprise. My, my closest connection to it is through the magazine, which I never stop yammering about on this show, which I write for, but he does a whole lot more than that. We're going to talk about the stuff that he does. We're going to talk about his wrestling fandom, wrestling in the UK, the WWF expansion globally, and all that kind of fun stuff. And I will take you to that conversation right now. Okay, so it's definitely my pleasure this week on Shut Up and Wrestle to welcome someone to the podcast who is actually one of the people who pays me to write about pro wrestling. So I'm not going to complain about that, uh, although there will certainly be no conflict of interest in this interview, I promise you that. He is the person behind the entire Inside the Ropes franchise. So if you are a fan of that, then you're going to enjoy 
this conversation uh, for, I think, what, like 12 years now, 11 years now. He's been running the the Inside the Ropes Q&As with some of your favorite wrestling personalities, not to mention in the past, um, I guess, four years, right? He's been the uh, the person behind Inside the Ropes magazine, which I have been proud to be a part of from almost the very beginning. And so I'm I'm pleased to welcome him to the show this week. Kenny McIntosh. Kenny, thank you so much for coming on the show. What an introduction. I feel like people <laughs> might think this is nepotism no matter what we do, but that's fine. We can I just wanted to get it out of the way right off the bat. Yeah. So nobody, you know, oh, well, you're just, you know, blah, blah, blah. I just want to put it out there. We're not hiding anything. I write for Inside the Ropes. You run Inside the Ropes. And hey, you know what? It took a lot of restraint for me to wait, you know, all this time to have you on. I was saying to you before we came on, like I genuinely, I think this is the first time I've ever been a guest on a podcast that I listen to anyway. So, because when you started Shut Up and Wrestle, I was really interested about what it was going to be and who you were going to talk to. And I've loved hearing like the people uh, who worked at WWE. Like I remember one of the early episodes with Deborah, I think it was. Deborah. Yes, De- Deborah Jazzway. Yes. Yeah, that was a really fun chat. And then obviously, our mutual friend Keith Elliott Greenberg, you've had him on, Tom Buchanan, the photographer. So all that kind of stuff I'm very interested in because you don't get to hear from a lot of those kind of people who work behind the scenes. So, yeah, very, very honored to be on. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. And, you know, I've admired what you've done even before I was writing for the magazine, just because what I, what I love about it, because I'm a, a wrestling history fan, but I'm also somebody who follows wrestling today. You know, not everybody fits into both of those buckets. And I love that Inside the Ropes is kind of, to me anyway, it's about embracing both. Like you have, you know, your shows and the magazine appeals a lot to nostalgia, of course, but also it's not blind to the current product. And you ha- you cover current wrestling and you, you, you have personalities that are associated with current wrestling as well and so i appreciate that you do both because it gives perspective you know to the things that so, so when you do cover history there's a perspective about how it all connects to the present also yeah because i think i think i see you tweet a lot and i and i'm kind of the same but i don't tweet it as much as you do but like i feel like we both watch current wrestling we really enjoy it we kind of critique things we don't like we put over things we do like and we're very aware of the eras in the past that we are always going to think of as the best because they were our era when we were growing up. And I think that's okay to kind of be like, I'm aware that this is always going to be probably my favorite thing because of the time in my life when I was a fan of it. But I think that, you know, the bloodline stuff today is an example. It's like, you know, you can hold that up to any old WWF storyline that there was, you know, the, the mega powers, Austin McMahon, whatever one you want to hold it up to. So I think, I've seen it's not I've seen people before who cover historical stuff and they don't keep up with current stuff and for me I don't ever want to be that way I want to kind of always have at least a foot in the current stuff and I couldn't really imagine a scenario where you know there would be a year where WrestleMania is on and I'm not at least watching it I just can't imagine that that would be kind of where my life would be but um yeah no I th- I think for inside the ropes it's weird because we're trying to cater to all these different people right so We've got our website, itrwrestling.com, which is a wrestling news website. And it's a very, you know, instantaneous thing. And it's an article goes up and 
two days later, nobody's probably ever going to read it again because it's news, news, news all the time. But with the magazine, it's a physical, historical document almost where, you know, like the stuff you do in the magazine, which is often looks back at historical stuff or focuses on the McMahons. But that's stuff that I think people will pick up in two years and reread. And I think that's an important thing to have because I grew up with magazines, you grew up with them, you worked obviously in magazines as well before ITR. Um, so yeah, I think that we try and do a lot of different types of stuff, but I've just always loved wrestling and the fact that it's a job still kind of is a pinch me moment because I always remember my mum was like, when are you going to just give up this <laughs> wrestling stuff? You know, it's just, and now she's like, thank God you didn't give up that wrestling stuff. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot like of us get found out one day. Well, a lot of us has been, have been there. I mean, what you're describing is also a lot of what what I've gone through over the years. You know, even when because when I even first came to work for WWE, that was 2000, and I was I mean I was young. I was in my I was like 25 or something, and it was a very similar thing where my parents were like, "Wow, um, we never really kind of thought this was going to lead to anything that would help your life." Like. <laughs> <laughs> but we're glad that it did and well okay good for you you know it was one of those things and now even now today i'm able to do so much um professionally that intersects with stuff something that i really love and enjoy and inside the ropes has been a a big part of that as <laughs> for people who read the the magazine and i plug it all the time on the show i have sort of become i don't know how this happened i blame dante richardson i'm not sure but i have um... become the resident chronicler of the ongoing McMahon family WWE behind the scenes drama and turmoil. One of these days, I think you guys have to take all those articles that I've done on Triple H and and Vince and Shane and everybody and like make it like a little digest book out of it. Just the, the story of the McMahons by, by Brian R. Solomon. I think that would be worthwhile. Okay. We've been we've been caught out. Our plan has been has been revealed. Um, but, yeah, but the thing is, because I think you work there, I think that that's like such a unique perspective that you have that nobody else, well, not not a lot of people have. And um, so you know, and they're great articles. I mean, we need to get you to do one in Linda at some point. I mean, just focusing on her alone would be fascinating. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's funny because listening to all the podcasts and stuff that, and reading your articles about you working at WWE. I'm always kind of fascinated by it because you seem to be one of the only people who has come out of it and still is able to enjoy it and kind of be a, a, a sort of, I don't want to say a fan of it necessarily because you obviously cover it professionally, but uh, a spectator of it and not feel bitter about anything. And that doesn't seem to be the way. Like I knew somebody, I won't name and shame them, but I knew somebody who said, if I could give you any advice, it's work with them, not for them. And I always remembered that line, and I was like, okay. So, I mean, I've never had the opportunity to work for them. I've always worked with them, but... It, it's I've not the worst them. It's not the worst piece of advice. I'll just <laughs> tell you that. It's really not. I can sort of see where the person might have been coming from. Because I'll tell you this, um, I was bitter. <laughs> I don't... <laughs> I don't talk about that. I mean, I'm, I tend to be a very positive person and especially online. I don't uh, get mixed up in social media drama. I, I I do not tear people down. And But in the beginning, when I first left the company, I was let go. I didn't leave voluntarily. Um, 
I was not a happy camper and I wanted nothing to do with wrestling for a couple of years where I was just fed up. Cause the interesting thing is when I worked there, even during my time there, I had just sort of like moved away from following it outside of a professional capacity because I I was there, you know, X amount of hours a day, a week working on it, writing about it, thinking about it. And I got to the point where if I wasn't at work, I didn't want to even know anything about wrestling. And I would even watch the pay-per-views and stuff. I would watch after the fact in the office because we would get like the tapes back in the VHS days. And I'd watch everything there. I'd watch Raw in the office. I'd have SmackDown going on the TV while we were working because I didn't want to devote any a single minute of my personal life to wrestling because <laughs> I was devoting so much of my other time to it. But then as the years went by and things mellow and my kids got into wrestling and, you know, as a, as a freelance writer, I also didn't want to pass up opportunities because I was getting opportunities put in front of me. Like, hey, this person wants you to write about wrestling. This person wants you to write this. and um, I didn't want to turn it down. So that kind of started pulling me back into it. And now, you know, I'm, I'm just as much of a fan as I've ever been, if not more so. Um, but, but get it and getting to write for inside the ropes is part of that. I, I, I love to do that. Well, it's a, it's a weird thing as well, because I feel in a way, so inside the ropes, I mean, there's like four businesses, there's YouTube channels, there's all this stuff that's part of it. And it's weird because sometimes somebody will say, take a day off. And I go, how do you take a day off from your biggest interest that gives you joy in a personal sense, but is also your work? It's bizarre. And I, you know, to your point, I mean, I can only imagine if you do leave something like that, that it, there must be a transition period because you kind of want to get back to that point where this thing that you devoted so much of your life to that you enjoy so much, you still get to. So I think that's a perfectly fair way to be in the initial days. Yeah, because you don't want to get robbed of the passion that you have for something. You know what I mean? When you work at doing something you love, that could sometimes happen where you just uh, it just drains it out of you. I mean, like with, with WWE, you know, there could be politics, there could be office things that go on, things that, you know, experiences that you have and that I have, which turn you off a little bit or even sometimes... <laughs> I remember when they did the Katie Vick angle and man coming into work the next day after that. I mean, I can't overestimate to you what that was like. I mean, I know this is going to sound ridiculous and sacrilegious to say, but it was like walking in to work after like a national tragedy had occurred, like a president getting assassinated or like, you know, something like that and coming in the next day. We were, everyone was like shell shocked. And I remember a couple of us, I was one of them. There were people that were just like, I, I can't watch this crap anymore. Like, I just can't do it. I can't do it. Like, I feel, I feel dirty being affiliated with this. And it takes a while. But then, you know, it's wrestling and you love wrestling and you're a fan and it brings you back. I know a lot of fans have this experience. We see it on Twitter all the time. These people are like, I'm never watching this again. This is an, oh, this is disgusting. This company has lost me forever. And it's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You're going to watch Monday Night Raw tomorrow night to see what happens. We all know that everybody does that. You, you love what you love. And that, and that for a lot of people, it never goes away. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, some of the, but then it's weird because there, I mean, I, I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head, but there, there'll be something that happens in wrestling and you kind of go, this would never happen in any other like sport that you like you you wouldn't have 
uh, you know, you like the 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 AEW backstage brawl at All Out or whatever. You wouldn't have this other thing where there's like a nine month thing where there's legal stuff, and then there's another TV show that might be created for one of the wrestlers, and then these guys will speak to this guy, and then within it, the guys who don't want don't want to speak to the other guy are like mocking him on air a little bit with like a, a move reference. It's just all kind of ridiculous, but in a great way. And I think that's part of pro wrestling is it's just there's nothing else like it you know there's nothing else like one of the criticisms i used to get and i think we've all had this where you say that you like pro wrestling and people kind of look at you funny and they're like really you like that and and then they'll go you know why do you like it it's fake and my answer is usually whatever the kind of current big tv show is i'd be like do you think game of thrones is real (laughs) because it's the same thing it's like it's it's all it's meant to be fake like you're not you're not telling us a secret we don't know so um but yeah i think wrestling is just this unique thing that uh is great and i've talked to people who write about wrestling like me or even people who've written books about it and everybody's had that experience where you're at a party you're at a function or an event you're making small talk and Mm -hmm. somebody asks you well what do you do and i say well i'm a writer i'm an author uh you know and oh wow Wow, that's really cool. That's impressive. What do you write about? Pro wrestling. And then sort of like the tenor of their expression and the conversation, everything. It just is like, really? Oh, okay. Um, Yeah, yeah. And I'll go, well, I do write about other things too, you know. And it's like this thing where you have to apologize for it and people judge you for it. It's true. I've had, oh, I've had terrible... Uh, I mean, like people will insult you without any sense of propriety or any kind of like, like I, I had it happen to me once. I'm not, I'm, I'm, you know, in, in my classic uh, New York uh, Jewish stereotype, you know, when I was in therapy, like Woody Allen uh, right. for years, uh, I've been in a therapy session. I can remember at least one time where I have said something to the effect of where I worked or what I did for a living. And this professional uh, therapist whose job is to listen to people and not judge people and be, you know, this objective kind of, you know, arbiter will just start ridiculing me openly, just openly for writing about this stupid junk. And I'm, you know, how could I do that? And that's for idiots. And I'm thinking like, man, I, I. The idea that you would feel that comfortable saying that in a setting like this, it speaks volumes. Like people don't even realize sometimes how insulting it can be. And yes, I know wrestling's weird and bizarre and silly and goofy, and sometimes it's its own worst enemy. But there's such a profound lack of respect a lot of the time from people that don't get it towards the people who do get it. I can't believe that actually happened to you. That's wild. That's kind of... That, that, that's probably the most extreme example I've heard. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad I've got that one to use now in the back pocket. Yeah. I know someone who's in therapy and he. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I couldn't believe it. I was, needless to say, I switched therapists. I'm proud to say. But that was part of it because they were just judging me over this. But anyway, we don't want to make this whole thing about my therapy. So um, <laughs> I'll sh- that. That'll be a different podcast. But I wanted to mention one of the things that I love about. Um, the magazine, I know Inside the Ropes is a lot more than that. We'll talk about those things too. But I love the idea that even visually that you guys have been going for 
this kind of retro style. Like it's no secret in the beginning, you know, like in the beginning, your your covers were very reminiscent of WWF magazine style covers, which was near and dear to my heart even before I worked there, just growing up reading those magazines. And now, of course, the style is very much power slam, which makes perfect sense because really the whole magazine itself felt like uh, a love letter to power slam magazine, which for those who may not remember was the definitive for many years pro wrestling magazine coming out of the UK. So I, I just think it's very cool that you guys have those kind of callbacks and things, because let's face it now, you know, inside the ropes is one of the only wrestling magazines that exists, at least in print form. So it's nice to be able to have a, a to have a nod to the wrestling magazines of the past too. I kind of dig that. Yeah. No, I, th- I mean, that, obviously that is intentional, uh, but I mean, the, the, so what happened was during COVID, COVID happened, and then I I was doing events, and I was doing the, the YouTube channel, and the events obviously went away. So there was this kind of massive, you know, gap in my income stream. And then Dante Richardson, who is the editor, he and he and I ended up um, kind of having a conversation and being like, and being like, we could do a magazine, um, inside the ropes magazine because as a inside the ropes as a brand, kind of feels like it would, it could parlay into a magazine form quite easily. And then we very quickly were like, okay, well, who's the audience that's buying this magazine? Who is the, who, who are the people? And we quickly realized there's no point in trying to convince 15-year-old kids to buy a magazine because that's such a long shot for them to want to do it because they've not grown up on it for the most part. So we were like, we have to appeal to people who have previously bought wrestling magazines. That is going to be the market that is going to work. So... WWF magazine, of course, had to be the first one, um, and that worked great. And then Power Slam, Dante and I, we both are just so, what's the word, um, influenced by Power Slam by Finley Martin because when I I remember first picking up a Power Slam in nineteen ninety seven when I would have been twelve, and I didn't know anything about the Observer, so you know, I had no idea who Dave Meltzer was at that point, and I was reading Power Slam. It was the first time I would read wrestling talked about not in kayfabe. And I kind of was starting to understand the kind of behind the scenes stuff. And then the example that I, I use, because it's it, it's it's wild to think about it in 2023, but I was watching the 97 Survivor Series and I would watch the main events of pay-per-views before I would go to school on the Monday morning, because obviously they were on until like 4 a.m. Um, and I watched the, the Sean and Brett match and I couldn't work out what had happened. <laughs> I felt like I'd... I'd missed something at the finish, and I was like, I don't get it. I How old understand. were you, by the way? How old were you? Well, at that? Twelve. Okay. Yep. Twelve. So, like, I, obviously, I knew that the wrestling was was fake, but I didn't know what had happened because I wasn't at that point. Power Slam hadn't told you Bret Hart was leaving or anything like that. So, then we got to wait till the Friday for Raw because it's not on live, and they, you know, they say Bret Hart's left, and it was only when Power Slam came out two weeks later or whatever. And it had the big cover story, Bret Hart, I quit. And it's a whole four-page cover story about Montreal and what really happened. If I hadn't had that, I don't know how I would have been able how I would have processed what it was. Would I have just watched Raw and kind of had my knowledge by what Vince McMahon was saying on TV? Like, I don't know. So I felt like I was educated way earlier than I would have been if I hadn't had Power Slam. So um yeah, I think it was important to us to try and influence that as much as possible and get Finn Martin involved, which we have slowly made him be more involved and more involved and more involved um, 
much to his, you know, maybe dismay. He was enjoying retirement. We're like, come on, just do a little bit more, a little bit more. So, um, yeah, it's it's very fun to have him involved. I think it's great because he's kind of like the Bill Apter of 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 the UK wrestling magazine world in a way, just like this yeah. emeritus figure. I think it's really awesome. I was. It's funny you mentioned that whole thing with '97 Survivor Series in Montreal as opening up opening you up to Power Slam because I was. Uh, in my early 20s, I guess I'm about 10 years older than you. For me, that thing was because I wasn't really smartened up at all either. Even though I was that age, it was like I grew up in a time where you just weren't unless you had newsletters, which I didn't have. And um, that is what got me into wrestling on the Internet, actually, uh, was it was 97. I was just getting online. I didn't have a computer in my home yet. I had one in school. I had one at my job. And, you know, I was wasting time at my job. There's nothing new there. <laughs> and I wanted to, I started stumbling on wrestling websites and like learning. And they would report, of course, little did I know those early wrestling websites, they were getting their stuff from the Observer, a lot of it, or maybe the Torch. And I didn't know that at the time, but like there was scoops and there was, you know, people talked about it, Mikasa, and there was, the Rick who just passed away, Rick Skaya, and he had his website online onslaught. All these early wrestling sites got opened up to me because of wanting to know what happened at the 97 Survivor <laughs> Series. Like that was the beginning of it. And I remember like talking to my friends at work, some of whom were like casually interested in wrestling and some who weren't. And they were just like, I don't understand. It's like, man, like the stuff that's happening behind the scenes that you're talking about is more interesting than the show. And I was like, I know, I know it's true. I had no idea. And I started learning more and more. That was, that was like a watershed moment for me, for sure. Yeah. I feel that I feel it for people who are between my age and your age, that that must've been the big moment because it's kind of the most, it's the hardest to understand moment if you don't have more context as to what went on. So, I mean, obviously today it's today. I think if people buy a magazine, you know, we're not giving you anything that you don't already know, but we're hopefully making you think a little bit about stuff. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, and I, I mean, I'm biased, of course, but I love the magazine. I think it's so, I feel like for the 48 pages that we give people, there is so much stuff in it every single month. Like it's packed and I'm the sort of hardest critic. So like if I thought something was bad, I'd be the first person to be like, we, you know, we can't run this or we need to change this. But I mean, I don't. I think we we've got a really high quality of writers and content and stuff. So yeah, I'm because I think we've we've just had issue thirty five come out, which means that ne- you know the next one is three years now. It's been going, which is wild because you know to, because when we started it as well. The other thing is, um, not to give too much away, but you know behind the scenes, all the prices of everything went up numerous times in the last three years because obviously. The, the the Ukraine war, um, you know, energy cr- money money's gone up, so it's been trying to continue to do the magazine to high quality, but deal with all these constant sort of increases in costs. So it's been good to ride the wave, and I think we're kind of at a level now we've we've balanced out and um, we're kind of over that hump. But um, yeah, it's 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 mad now to think it's been three years. And you've cracked the code, like you said, of, you know, because magazines in the 2020s is not an easy proposition. And wrestling magazines, maybe more than most, it's tough because you can find all the information and news you want online. Like, it's all there. 
at your fingertips. So you got to figure out like, what can we do that is different? I, like I remember one of the strengths that we always leaned into with the magazines at WWE, because this was the beginning of when I was there, it was the beginning of, you know, wrestling news on the internet. So, you know, undermining whatever kind of kayfabe stuff you're trying to do. So one of the things we really leaned into was photography because we felt like this is something like our photography is something that they're not going to find anywhere but in this magazine and, of course, on our website, too. And so, like, the magazines became, I, I almost want to say more than ever before, really heavy on photography. And I, I was a writer, so I was, like, grumbling and mumbling about, <laughs> oh, well, don't forget about the writers, you know, but it became a lot about photography. But you guys have, by by making it into, not entirely, but like giving it a retro feel, giving it like a throwback sense of, this is, it's almost like it's a wrestling magazine that's a tribute to wrestling magazines. Like it's a cool idea that makes the magazine something that you want to buy. You're not going to buy it. I know I'm giving you like a free commercial here, but <laughs> you're not going to buy it to be like necessarily, oh, what happened on the pay-per-view? I got to find out, you know, who won. No, of course not. Of course not. But there's, but it's that whole sense of nostalgia and the nostalgic spin even on the current product that makes it an interesting, you know, object to look for. And I also love the fact that, and this gave me a lot of, it's it was a humbling thing for me because seeing a magazine that's put together by people that grew up reading wrestling magazines in some cases, reading the magazines that I had worked on, it was funny to me and odd in the beginning. It took time getting used to the fact of going like, wow, okay, so the work we did back then is now something that's highly regarded by a generation of fans who are now adults. And you know what I mean? And that and that, and, it, and it made me happy to see people in the masthead. That was the thing. When I started seeing people in there like Keith mm-hmm. and, and other people that I knew that had worked with me or on other wrestling magazines in the past, it made me think like, okay, I think I'd like to try to be a part of this. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and I think that was our whole thing in the beginning was let's get an all-star team of people who, <clears throat> because I feel like, you know, you can get writers anywhere to write content, but I think in the, I always think about it for me, it's like, what would I want to read? And I feel like I'm, I don't want to say I know everything, right. But like I've, I've read most things, so if there's stuff that I can learn new things from, then I think that's worth doing. And I mean, one of the things that's interesting about doing the magazine today, when I talk to Finn Martin sometimes, is, you know, he when he was running Power Slam, obviously it was way bigger because magazines were a lot more popular in, you know, 2005 or whatever. But his was very much based on who's on the cover. The cover is, the cover star is the, is the sale of the magazine. So he would put Cena on the cover a lot because Cena was obviously a big cover star, but then he would find that he put, you know, Jack Swagger on the cover in 2010 because they put the belt on him that that issue would bomb because nobody would buy an issue with Swagger. Whereas for us, because we're kind of a more niche thing and people are subscribing or whatever, we're able to take a bit more risks. So Vince was on the cover when the whole scandal thing happened, which we kind of felt he had to be. Cornette was on the cover in December. And I mean, Jim loves the fact that he was the biggest selling issue we've ever had, especially because wow. he did it because he did a photo shoot, which you know, because I I said you know Jim we want to we want to interview you again, but we also want to put you on the cover, um, 
and he and you know he agreed to do a photo shoot. So, you know, that's completely you know, fifteen years ago you wouldn't have put a a non wrestler person on the cover and it wouldn't have done better than putting regular superstars on the cover. So I think that's been an interesting thing to 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 kind of experiment with and to see what works and what doesn't. So but what, and also at the beginning, I think for the first six or seven issues we had this thing where people kept dying the week after we went to press like every single issue and it was really frustrating because we wanted to sort of honor all these people road warrior animal kamala you know all these people who were luke harper and it was all happening but we were it, it was this thing of, we we have to cover them next month obviously but it's so annoying when it's happened and at one point we cursed is every month somebody gonna gonna happen again and again and again but obviously that didn't and you know we we had Keith doing the Iron Sheik uh, obituary for the, the last issue and he worked with him so I think the good thing is having like you and having Keith and having Finn and having people who've done it before there's all these kind of things that you guys can draw into articles and experiences that you've had that I just think for people who read it it makes it much more enjoyable so yeah I'm very happy with it and uh, long may it continue and, and I agree and I want to talk to you about even just you're coming to this, as we said, this is, you know, a passion of yours. It's something that you're interested in. You're a fan. You know, it's not just a business. Um, a, a very interesting era for me, because I'm over here, you know, so to me, it's something it's a it's a different perspective is the the idea of how much, particularly the WWF, but I think WCW, too, but definitely the WWF. Let's just say American wrestling, how American pro wrestling exploded in the UK, in that era when, when Power Slam was out, I mean, I guess it would be like maybe the from the very end of the 80s, right? After the national expansion had happened here and Vince controlled the whole country and uh-huh. North, the whole continent, he wanted to go overseas. Mm-hmm. All the way deep into the 90s, there was a, a whole kind of... He basically did over there what he did here, which is he completely... <laughs> annihilated the the native history of wrestling that had existed in that country and replaced it with his own. Like I'll never forget when I, I interviewed um, Tyler Bate when he first started with WWE and he won the, um, he had won the, he was the first holder of the UK title and he's a young guy. You know, at the time I interviewed him, he was 19 years old (laughs) and um, he, yeah, I think he was like one of the youngest title holders they ever had. And so his perspective, you know, because I'm like, I'm not going to talk to you about like giant haystacks like you're, you know, his earliest memory of wrestling was like the Attitude Era, which I almost fell out of my chair. Like he was like, yeah, I was like a, a baby, you know, when that was going on. And I'm like, oh, it's interesting. It makes you think of how like a, American pro wrestling became a huge phenomenon in the UK during that era. Well, it's funny because, you know, so Finn is like. I think Finn's 18 years older than me, something like that. But he, his story about how he found wrestling was one of his friends or somebody he knew had showed him a tape of WWF from like 1988. And like in the UK, I, I never saw World of Sport. I mean, I, I think it's really dull. So I'm probably quite the, the worst person to ask about it because it's just like, it's just not, I, I'm a big kind of glitz, glamour, pump, mm-hmm. circumstance type guy when I watch wrestling. So that's just not for me. But 
he just he was he Finn was really taken by all these big characters and the production and what it was. So that's 1988 that that happens to him when he's like a teenager, and that leads him to start his first magazine in 1992, Superstars of Wrestling, which ran till I think June of '94, and then Power Slam started. But then my introduction to wrestling was like the next year, but in a completely different way because my mum, my mum's friend had bought me for like. It's either, I think it's the 1990 Christmas, but maybe the 1989 one. One of the two. She bought me the toy Hasbro ring, the WWF ring. I'd never seen wrestling before. So I've just got this ring. that I have no idea what it is or what it's about. And I guess it was because it was popular at that point. So my mum goes out and buys me, I think it was Hulk Hogan and Akeem, the two figures which would seal her fate to buying these things for years and years and years. <laughs> and um. And I and so I started kind of enjoying it that way, and then, but in in the UK it was like until kind of ninety two, it was quite hard to get a, a hold of stuff. So there was a a, a mail away catalog you could get, which sold VHSs, um, or you could go into stores and buy some. But it was in like ninety two that was when it all kind of really kicked off. Obviously with SummerSlam, and they would, and I feel I feel like between ninety two and ninety four, they would just do all these tours all the time. It was like three four tours a year in the uk like i'm sure in 92 there's a period where there was two different tours running at the same time wow. and in glasgow where i was one week was one date from one tour and the next week they were in glasgow again with the other group from like at the same time that's how big it was at that point and i think it and i mean it was a, it was a fast thing because obviously it was really fast they had the big summer slam thing and then it kind of started to dip a little bit yeah but it's funny because so i i fell in love with it and that was me for the rest of eternity um but i remember so i i i couldn't get cable tv right i couldn't get cable tv because where we lived there was this prick who lived above us who wouldn't let us have a satellite dish outside so we couldn't have cable satellite tv which killed me so from 92 to 97, we couldn't have this. But then in 97, we moved, we got a satellite. So I was able to, rather than trying to steal tapes off of friends all the time, I was finally able to watch WWF. And the thing that's interesting about being from the UK is that, so on, so Raw would be on a Friday night, 10 till midnight, but Nitro would be on TNT from 9 till 11.30, I think it was. They sh- For some reason, they showed two and a half hours of a three-hour show. I don't know why, but they did. <laughs> So you Pro- would always probably watch- better that way. I'm thinking. I yeah, don't know. shorter the better. Yeah. But, um, so most people would watch Nitro from nine till ten, then they'd switch and watch Raw from ten onwards. But I feel like a lot of people in the UK wanted to be WCW fans more. But after '94, they just didn't come here till like 2000. You couldn't watch the pay per views. There was no way to watch the WCW pay per views at all. Um, I think there was one point in like '98 where. Warner Brothers brought out six of the pay-per-views on video, but that was like months later. So WCW right. made it very difficult for you to be a fan in the UK. Right, and right. I feel like one of the biggest sort of muck-ups that they had was when they had Bret Hart in December 97. Like, the European tour of Bret Hart with WCW just felt like the easiest thing in the world for them to do. And they never did it. Whereas WWF, they were always very clever to come over here all the time. I mean... They did six years, WWF, of those terrible UK-only pay-per-views, some of which I attended, which were abysmal. I mean, 
awful, awful. I mean, there was a pay per view in 1999 that I went to that you had to pay £15 for on Sky Box Office. And one of the pay per view matches was Gilbert and Tiger Ali Singh. Mm. That was that was the level that we got. You know, but, I used to write the I used to write the program copy for those UK oh, shows like Insurrection and Rebellion <laughs> and all of those. I used to not only I used to manage edit them, so I would like assign the interviews for them. Like that was a pet project that was given to me, but it was exactly for that reason. I was new, and they were like, "Yeah, let's give Solomon something to do." I don't know, do the UK pay per view programs. Like I don't know, nobody cares about those anyway. You, you handle that. So, but it was cool. I got to interview William Regal for one of them, and yeah, I would write all like the bios of the superstars in those things and in the in the UK uh, in the UK programs. But go on, I'm sorry. I didn't... No, no, they were they were great. I was at Money in the Bank in London last month, and like, because I used to love those programs. I used to buy them all the time. And I remember that No Mercy one. They had like a, an, uh, I mean, I'm sure he didn't write it, but they had a like intro from Commissioner Michaels. You know, I, pro- I probably wrote that. I'm thinking. There you go. I so you're, you're which is great because when you're a kid, you want stuff like that. Whereas when I went to Money in the Bank and I went to see what the program was like, it wasn't even a Money in the Bank specific program. It was just a pictures program of, of all the, the stars, which is a shame. I feel like people would have liked more, but I, I think the WWF used to give us, they used to come over all the time. So because we were so starved for live WWF wrestling or live WWE wrestling, we would kind of eat up anything they gave us, even if it was insurrection or rebellion or whatever. Whereas WCW just never, they never took advantage. Like I remember in 2000, WCW came over uh, to the UK and it was like it's called the Nitro Tour or something right and on the poster for the tour was Goldberg Sting Kevin Nash yeah that, that they were in the poster and none of them were there at the show none of them were on the show Bret Hart was there after his concussion and he flew to just do like interviews because he felt so bad to oh no sorry Nash was there Nash was there the other two weren't but Brett came over because he had been advertised locally. He didn't want to not be there. And anyway, so so they do this tour. And in Manchester, in 2000, they had 18,000 people in the arena in Manchester. And the main event was the Mamelukes against Ron and Don Harris. Wow. How do you show your face? How do you? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? No. But then the, the funniest thing was, like, two months later, and I'm sure that you guys have a US version of this. I don't know what it would be. But we had a we had a TV show called Watchdog. And it would be like if you've been wronged by a company, yes. you can like take them on TV and like go, look what they did to me. And someone took WCW on that show saying, we bought these nitro tickets and Sting wasn't there and Goldberg wasn't there. And I just thought it's so funny that you know WWF smartly give you just enough. But they don't put all their eggs in the UK basket. They just give you enough to keep you happy and then wcw get taken to watchdog on on tv for false advertising but they talk about in wrestling they talk about killing a town um <laughs> wcw was killing a country which is amazing to me just i mean like why would you ever go back after something like that for wcw you would feel so burned but i think like with wwf doing their shows mm-hmm. at that time in in the 90s my understanding also is that you know, that was a market that they could expand into when their domestic market was 
tanking. I mean, just at the moment when they were getting on fire over there, they were going down the tubes over here. Like those years, 91, 92, 93, were years of just gradual decline. I think 94 is like, and 95 are like the all-time low years for WWF's business. And it was a way of saying like, well, maybe we could offset some of that if we focus on the UK or even just Europe at large, because I know they were going more to Europe in general and Germany and France and things. We can offset the disaster that's happening over here in the US. Yeah, and, and the the it's funny because it is, that correlation you mentioned is interesting. That like as soon as it starts to dip in the US, that's as soon as it starts to rise in the UK, and then like I feel like in ninety one and ninety two they had a lot. They still had a lot of the Hulkamania era people that they kind of got away with it. But I feel like by ninety three and ninety four, like I remember going to a house show in nineteen ninety four and Quang was on the card, and I remember even as a kid going, "He's rubbish," like. <laughs> You know, you just knew that that this was like, oh, it's not and nothing against Savio Vega who was under the mask, but you know, it was just like they were kind of really scraping the barrel in terms of the gimmick stuff by then, and yeah, yeah it was it was interesting because it actually it, it even got to a point in the UK where they stopped coming for a little while. WWF, so they they came in '95, and then they there was a period where they didn't come for like a full year. They they didn't come again till like the end of '96. Um, which is but the longest time they they didn't come to the UK, and um and then they came back in, at the end of '96, and Finn had written about it in Power Slam, and I always remember it. So he went to the Birmingham Arena, the NEC Arena, and it was right after the '96 Survivor Series, and he he went to the show, and on the undercard, Bret Hart faced Mankind, which sounds like a you know a match that would be great to see live because when did they ever wrestle each other? But the main event was Sid, who had just won the title against Farouk. And the main event was 48 seconds. And he said that when he left, it was one of the first times that he remembered just hearing all these people who were, you know, in the audience leaving, just really disappointed Hmm. in in WWF. So they did this show in November 96. And people thought, oh, they're going to start doing tours again. They didn't. But then they came back the next year with one night only. And always forgiven. Because they, you know, gave you a show that actually meant something. So, um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting. Even though WWF kind of were falling apart, they still managed to kind of get it back. Whereas the WCW, it felt they they never really tried over here. And I think had they tried, there was a market of people who were desperate for wrestling. You know, it was an it was a a country where there was not. You know, if WWF came over twice a year, families could still afford to go to WCW twice a year. You know, it's only four times a year that people would, you know, somebody would be over. So I think that's a big mistake that WCW made. Because um, I think if you speak to anyone from the UK, it would, it's, it was very hard to be a WCW fan and see everything. Yeah, you know, other people have told me that same thing with the WCW thing. Because in the beginning, when they were doing that, they seemed to really be invested. I mean, they even did... Um, a sp- a couple of title changes, major title changes um, of the world title, you know, Vader and Sting and that kind of thing was going on on some of their European tours. But yeah, then it just seemed to kind of drop off. Um, they, they, they did the big tour in 93 with Bulldog after they'd signed right? down. So, they, they, you know, they, you're right. And that was the same tour where I think they did those two title changes. But yeah, they just, and even when Hogan signed, like I think when Hogan signed, they did one tour. 
I want to say in late 94. I think he was on it. I think he came over for one show. But yeah, there was, it, it's crazy when you think about it, that the entire lifespan of the NWO, WCW never were in the UK at any point, you know? Yeah, just one of a, a myriad bad decisions that they made at the time, I guess. That's, you know, explains why they're not here anymore. But I had I had a question, though, for you. Something I, I, I've always meant to ask somebody that I thought would might have a perspective. Now, you're of the prime age to be the perfect target for when WWF was coming over there and when they were really exploding into the market. I mean, you're a little boy. It's like you're just – it's prime. I know in the United States – so I grew up in the New York area in the Northeast, which was always WWF territory going back to before I was born. Even in the days of the territories, it was still the territory. There was always a sense in the U.S. among older fans in other areas of just that son of a bitch, Vince McMahon. He came in. He killed the wrestling that I loved. You know, and nobody talks about it anymore now. And I have all these fond memories of whatever my local wrestling was at the time, my territory. And now it's just been whitewashed over. Uh Is there ever a sense or was there among older fans in the UK uh, uh, similar to that towards the WWF? Or is it more like, like you said, you know, look, the UK wrestling, it was pretty dry i mean was it was it just like thank god for the wwf like is there any attitude of of bitterness for the old stuff you know i, th- I think there, i think there was for some older people like so if, if if i was to speak to like a friend's dad or a friend's grandmother or whatever if i was to say oh yeah so like for example if somebody says to me what do you do kenny it's the hardest question to answer because <laughs> yes. I've, what, what do i say but eventually, if I say wrestling, people go, oh, yeah, I used to watch wrestling, giant, giant, haystacks, big daddy. You know, you'll get that. But I think it's a case of those people just stopped watching that when that finished and just never watched anything else. I don't think they were so much a fan of wrestling. They were just a fan of that one particular thing. Right. And whereas with WWF, I feel like it's just they, for whatever reason, at the right time, they caught this new wave of kids who were just kind of, because in the UK at that point in time, in like 88, 89, 90, American stuff was becoming really big. Like American media was becoming really big, like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or like, you know, American movies. So like, because American stuff was almost like British stuff on steroids. It was like <laughs> 10 times bigger. It was just more, uh, you know, so much bigger, larger than life than anything that we would have over here. So I feel like that was very alluring to kids. I know it was alluring to me. So I feel like that was something that was a, a factor. And WWF was one of many things that, uh, you know, like the Batman movie in 1989 when that came out, you know, that kind of started all the, the merch of movies and stuff, of American films, Ghostbusters. So there was just a load of stuff that kind of came around at the same time. But I've spoke to a few people who, who, older people who watched World of Sport. And I think World of Sport seemed to be like, a destination viewing for for like a lot of the country when it was on because it was on like our version of NBC. Mm-hmm. So I think like half the country were watching World of the Sport when it was on in its heyday in the 70s. But I think that probably died off at the end of the 70s, the beginning of the 80s, and it stayed on till 88. So I think by the time that finished, it was kind of, you know, it, it had gone away anyway, pretty much. Like right. People had stopped watching it. So I think there was enough of a gap where you didn't have too many 
because uh, because apparently one of the big crowds for World of Sport was angry old grandmothers. <laughs> like, we had that here. Well, we had that okay. here. Yes, and that's something. That's a, a portion of wrestling fandom you don't see anymore. There would be the angry old lady hitting the heels. <laughs> with her handbag when they were on their way to the ring. That was a big part of wrestling fandom in the territory days. No question. Yeah. So it's, it's, but it's, it's just so different. Like with WWF, when they came in, it was just, that was more kids. I don't really know if anybody who was a, an adult in the, in the late eighties, early nineties got into WWF properly because it was really cartoony, right? It was so. It was aimed it was, at kids. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean like the honky tonk man, I thought he was great at the time. Um, I mean, I still, I still, I still think he's great. But you know, I, like, if you're not, if you were like 25, you're not going to be like, oh, the honky tonk man. This is high art that I want to watch. <laughs> um, you're probably not going to. Especially if you grew up with like the guys wrestling the Wigan style, like the Snake Pit wrestlers and yeah. Bill, Billy Robinson and all that kind of thing. And and now you're seeing a guy dressed like Elvis. I I, I guess I could kind of understand. But you know. It kind of reminds me a little bit how here there were there were some territories that were already dead by the time Vince rolled in. They were already either gone for years, like that happened in Detroit, or they were really on the last leg. The audience had dried up, like Los Angeles was like that, St. Louis was like that, where they had wrestling. It used to be really popular. It wasn't anymore so much. It sounds like that's kind of like... What was happening over there, maybe it was just something that had run its course and it was almost like perfect timing for them to move in and bring this thing to town. Like you said, it, it th- that the thing about British culture on steroids strikes me because, you know, I wrote a I've written books about other areas of pop culture. And, you know, I have a, I have a strong interest in pop culture from other countries and movies and things. And I've written about. Japanese cinema, like my Godzilla stuff. I've written about Italian cinema. I have a fascination with Italian cinema. And it seems to me to be like the 1980s was like this point in time where all of a sudden American culture, pop culture, just seemed to take over everywhere. Like the Japanese movie industry fell apart in the 80s, where it's just all about importing American movies. The Italian movie industry fell apart in the 80s, where it just became about American movies coming in. American movies in Japan. And it seems like that seemed to be happening everywhere. It's just like the point in time where American culture just took over the world. Well, even like the other day I was watching on Netflix, the American gladiators documentary. And what's funny about the American gladiators documentary is like the American gladiators series in the U S spawned a UK version. And the UK version was way more successful in the UK than the American one was. Like ours ran for like nine years and was like the highest rated show on a Saturday night in on the in the whole country. So it was like a huge thing. And that was because we just took this idea of all these massive, massive guys and women doing this gladiator format. So it's yeah, everything was kinda a bit bit in the UK you couldn't really steal the WWF model, right? You couldn't really take what Vince had done and replicate that you could do that with the gladiators because you could just find you know very muscly people and put them <laughs> on tv and they can do the gladiator stuff but you couldn't really do what vince had done because he'd kind right. of made it his own and made it so unique i mean like, i remember in the, in the late 90s i don't know if you've ever seen this if you've not i'll need to send you the poster but like by 1999 or 2000 th- these indie shows would pop up 
and the posters would be out and it would have like a fake cane on it and a fake Undertaker. And then like, but then I think at one point they booked the real Bushwhackers. So they'd have like the real Bushwhackers with a fake Steve Austin or a fake Rock or whatever. And they all looked so bad yes. on the poster. But like, because by the attitude era when things had got really big again, people were so starved for anything wrestling related that you would go and see this crappy little show down your local town hall with like a fake cane who just looked like he'd been down to like the dollar store to get his wig. And um, because it's like, I remember I would go to school in like 97, 98 and nobody talked about wrestling. It wasn't very popular. And I remember being in like science class and this guy came up to me who never mentioned wrestling. And he was just like, do you see what The Rock did on uh, on Raw on Friday? Like, and he had all of a sudden, like, now that was the cool thing to watch. And then for like a year, everybody was talking about it. So it's funny how you kind of, we're in it all the time, so we don't really think about it. But then True. you see people who aren't usually interested in it, you're like, oh, wow, this is this has got more popular. Yeah, I would see that here too. And it was it was very cool to me because I was watching it consistently all through the worst years business-wise, like you're saying. And then all of a sudden here, in the late 90s, you would start to see people in public. The thing for me was the T-shirts. You'd see people. The shirts you'd see would be Austin 316, of course. You'd see the NWO shirt. And I also found you'd, I'd see, I'd see Goldberg shirts. And, um, and, and I think a little bit of DX, too. But, I mean, the idea is I never remember seeing, even during Hulkamania years here in the U.S., I never remember seeing people just in public like in the mall or walking down the street wearing a wrestling t-shirt. Um, that was a sign to me. Like I remember being like, oh, wow, I guess it's starting to get popular again. And in fact, it might even be coming, be getting more popular than it was in the 80s, which I think in some ways was actually the truth. But I remember those um, those knockoff shows you're talking about. You know why I remember <laughs> it? Because I was working for WWE when some of that was going on. And I remember hearing from their legal department of like the thing, you know, of how they were going to try to go after it. And we were looking at, I mean, it's an open and shut case. Come on. We were looking at some of the posters and things. I've seen those. And I have to say, I, I do not want to let the the rock knockoff off the hook because it basically <laughs> was, correct me if I'm wrong, it appeared to be a a white British guy in blackface pretended yep. to be the rock was basically what they were doing. And I think yep. they, didn't they have, it wouldn't, would it, would they be using the actual names or did they try to have like different, slightly similar names? Like, I don't remember that. I'm going to try and find a poster where we're on, where we're on the, 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 on here. But like, I think, I think that they had like, they'd have Kane and in inverted commas, you know, they'd have like, or they'd have like, you know, Dan, the rock Brown. Right, I, have, that's what would, I remember. It would be would, like a slightly different. It wasn't. They weren't. They weren't trying to. I don't think they were trying to make you think this is the real thing. I don't think there was any illusion that they were going to trick anybody. It, it almost seemed yeah. like a like a cover band, you know? Yeah, they would. They would definitely. They would. They wouldn't have. They wouldn't like put the real photos of of the wrestlers. But they, yeah. It's, I mean, I almost admire the the balls of those people just going. <laughs> Do you know what? Let's just get a guy in a bald cap. And call him, you know, Steve, and bring him out and make some money. <laughs> and like, because I think on one of them, um, I can't find the specific one here, but like, I know Yokozuna was on one of them. Um, the real, the real Yokozuna. The real Yokozuna. He oh, would do, okay. 
he would do some of those tours, but um Oh right. I actually didn't he pass away on one of those tours yeah, while he, he was over away. there, right? Yeah, yeah. So um but yeah, it's, it's just I mean it's can I, today you would never ever see like some of the stuff we saw back then. Like and if you explain it to somebody now, they'd be like, somebody somebody got people to dress up as LOD and have fake shoulder pads. And you go, yeah, and they did really well. Like, like they, and they somehow, and it's funny because, you know, WWF probably just thought, is it even worth going after these people? Like, you know, th- I bet you they're drawing 10 people, who cares? Whereas they were probably drawing 200 people because they were, bit, what was funniest to me was when they started booking the real talent alongside them. So like, I just saw a poster there that was like, fake Undertaker, fake Road Warriors, but the real Greg the Hammer Valentine. Right. And you just think, what's that locker room like? Like, what's Greg like sitting there between with all these parody acts? It's just, it's, it's so funny. Well, because I'm wondering, not knowing anything about those shows other than just what I've said, were they using guys that were trained wrestlers that had worked other places? Or were these just some clowns that they just picked up and said, hey, you kind of look like Steve Austin. You want to just like pretend to be a wrestler? You know, because that would make a difference in terms of like what you're saying, coexisting in the locker room. Because with guys that actually were seasoned professionals, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think I think the ones who booked like Greg Valentine, the Bushwhackers. I don't know if it was Brian Dixon. It strikes me as a Brian Dixon type show because he obviously was a you know big promoter. So I would imagine he has the connections to maybe get those big names, and he can just kind of maybe I don't know bridge the gap between right. you know this guy's worked for ten years even though he's. Dressed up as Hawk, you know, he's fine, don't worry. Um, but yeah, again, you would never see that today. Um, but yeah, well, especially because I think WWE today would come down on that so so harder than they did back then, I, probably. I, I don't, but I think they still were coming after it. I mean, because one of the things I remember hearing, because every now and then, you know, because word travels around the office or whatever, I think the thinking was that because that was one of their most dependable kind of foreign markets where they could count on if things get bad over here, maybe we could, you know, do do okay over there. They didn't want anything to threaten that. <laughs> Even if it was something as, as small time as that, they didn't want anything kind of like confusing their brand. Because you remember too, it was also because of the UK that they got into the whole mess about the WWF versus WWE. I mean, so they were already in a lot of legal entanglements over there and a lot of brand confusion and things going on. And I think they didn't want anything even muddying the waters up even more. So they definitely, it definitely was on the radar for sure. I mean, I will, I don't know. What, I, I'm going to say this cause I'm just going to say it in a positive way, but like my, one of my personal experiences where, was back in 2017, I was doing a show with Scott Hall and we were doing this like one night in Glasgow with him and we called the show Oozing Machismo and it was very similar font to the Razor Ramon font. And obviously I, I had a pretty good relationship with WWE. I was going to press things and I got an email about that and they were like, is there any chance just going forward you can make it a bit less like 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 our font. And I was like, okay, fair enough. But it's like, you know, even people who they like, there, there is that kind of, you know, know there's a boundary to not totally cross it. So, um, I, yeah, I can only imagine if you had fake Undertaker and fake Kane that you were probably getting more, more, uh, uh, probably not as nice emails. But I actually, I had a, 
I had a question for you, if you don't sure. mind, because there's one thing I was I was curious about from your time in WWE. So, see in 2001 when Austin turned heel at WrestleMania 17. What when you were kind of working in the company? What was the vibe in terms of like a few months into that? Did people think this is a complete failure? We wish we hadn't done this. Was the vibe that there's no going back from them having turned Austin like? Because it's it's easy now with hindsight to say, well, that was a disaster of a move because of how big a star Austin was. But like, what was the? I'm just curious what the mindset was, you know, from inside the castle. Well, I, first of all, I was actually at the Astrodome that night. I was there with the live right. crowd. I was in like the employee section. I was sitting in the crowd, and I can tell you that at least in the, on that night. The entire, it's like what you were describing about that WCW show with the Mama Lukes and the Harris twins. Um, the life and energy was just completely sucked out of this gigantic Astrodome crowd and not in a good way because people, that was, people talk about that as maybe the greatest WrestleMania ever. And the energy was at an all time high, the positivity, the goodwill that people had, the fans, and it just died. I mean, people were filing out of that building angry not in a good way, disappointed, dejected, confused. And you can point to that whole period of, of when things started to turn down for the company as a whole. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think it was part of a bigger thing, but there was a sense even internally. I can't tell you if it was at the top because I wasn't privy to that, but I do know that even among the corporate side of things, talking to marketing people, talking to my own bosses in publication who are like talking to other VPs. There was a sense of like, boy, why did we do this? What a huge mistake. Like what were they thinking? Because you got to remember a lot of these departments are like hanging on to the TV creative for their bread and butter. It's like, you want to try to sell merchandise. You want to try to create licensed products. You want to try to market live events all this stuff is dependent on how good the television is. I mean, let's face it, you, you rise and fall by that. So there were people within the company, corporate people, who were really um, pissed off about that, thinking like, why would we do this with, you know, the hottest act that we've got? And especially just at the moment when he's healthy again, he's back in the ring, and we've we've taken over our competition, like the sky's the limit. Why do this? There definitely was a sense internally about that. And then they went into the invasion thing and it was like one calamity after another. I can definitely tell you it was not, there was not this gung-ho attitude inside the, the building of things are going great, everybody. Not at all. It, <laughs> it, you could really sense of like, cause I came in on the later period of the attitude era. You could really get the sense of like, them feeling that it was an era that was coming to an end for sure. Even even being there, you, you sensed it. It's interesting. I think I, I've always said I think 2001, I'm not trying to get you to do anything here, but I feel like 2001 is maybe the most interesting idea for a book in wrestling because the amount of stuff that happens in that year is just crazy. You know, yeah. and the missed opportunities, the, the the controversies, it's um it's insane. It was all the fallout from WCW. That was part of it too. Cause like we would, you would get these random, like all employee emails that would go out and they would have things in them where you would be like, what did, did, did everyone else just get the same email? Like I remember the email when 
we bought WCW. It was just sent out in this matter of fact way. You know, we now we have now come to terms with, you know, whatever company uh, AOL Time Warner on the the purchase of WCW intellectual property, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we got a similar one when uh, when Hogan was coming in, which was unthinkable at one point, which didn't happen right away because of his contract. Um, I remember one, no one even talks about this. It was right. I don't think it was 01. It might've been, this might've been early 02 maybe, but again, this was more WCW fallout they, mm-hmm. when they brought back Vince Russo for like 10 minutes. I mean, literally for like a meeting, we got an email that said Vince Russo. And this was like 2001 or two Vince Russo is now going to be in charge again of WWE creative. Honest to God. And Again, we're like, what? I, what? What's happening? Vince Russo, like, you know, and I, he had an active lawsuit against Hulk Hogan at the time going on, who was with us. And I remember I running, I remember that day running into Shane McMahon in the cafeteria at the office and being like, Shane, what the hell's going on? And he just had this shit eating grin on his face. Like, it was almost like they all knew how shocked everybody was going to be to read it. And he was like, yep, Vince Russo's coming back. I'm like, but he, he's he got like an active lawsuit against Hogan I, I, and this person. And, and he's like, eh, don't worry about that. We're going to take care of that. That's going to go away. I'm like, okay. And then literally the next day, I don't even know if it was the next day. It might have been the same day. They were like, yeah, that's not happening. Another email went out. You know, Yeah, well, never mind. No Vince Russo. Uh, it didn't work out. Apparently they had one meeting where he sat down with, the story I heard was he sat down with Vince. They got along Vince McMahon. They got along great. It was like old times, you know, whatever. Then they brought Stephanie and Triple H into the room who were like heavily involved with creative at that time. And they had a meeting, the four of them or something to that effect. And it was Vince and Vince and Stephanie and Hunter. And then the meeting ended and Russo was asked to leave the room. And then it was just the three of them in there for a little bit. The family. And then, like, McMahon came out, and apparently, like, Russo was like, they totally buried me in there, didn't they? And Vince McMahon was like, yeah, I'm sorry, Vince. I I don't think this is going to work out, you know? And it was because they had gotten so much power by that point. Stephanie and Hunter, I think they were essentially like, we're not working with that guy. Because they were running creative. I mean, Stephanie was, but, uh, you know, Hunter was also as well. Let's not kid ourselves. And it was the idea of like, yeah, we're not going to work with him. Sorry, it's not going to happen. But I mean, we'd get these crazy messages like that during that era. It was an insane time. I would, I would love to know what Russo's ideas were in two thousand. Like, I, I read uh, Brian Gewurz's book, and he said that one of the ideas that Russo had, because I think Undertaker was champion in two in two thousand two when he was when the undisputed, when yeah, 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 and like. Russo's idea was he wanted RVD to be the champ. So Undertaker was going to be stripped of the title and then they were going to do a tournament which RVD would win. And that was like his initial idea. And Gwartz was like, why are we stripping Undertaker of the title? Like, what's the, what's the reason? Why are we doing a tournament? Which, if that's one of the ideas, I can only imagine what the other ones were. Um, I mean, the, the story was out recently about Russo saying that he... Um, that Vince McMahon had told him in 2021, like he almost went back last year or something about how Vince said he could be a consultant on shows and then 
uh, he Russell wanted paid, and Vince said, "Well, I'm not paying you for it. You know, have watch them and see what you come up with." And I can I can believe I've never met Vince McMahon. I don't know anything about him personally, but I can fully believe that he would, for for entertainment purposes, want to get Vince Russo's notes to see what he would say because they would be right. Hilarious. No, I think you're right about that. There were things that were done. It was almost like to troll or to just try to stir the pot and just see what kind of crazy thing would happen. I remember one one guy, I, I could tell these stories forever, but if you ask me the right <laughs> questions, I worked with a, a guy that used to work at WWE in media like me. Uh-huh. And it was when the Ultimate Warrior came back for the Hall of Fame stuff. Uh-huh. And and Vince and the Warrior, you know, they made it out like they were all friends and best friends again and everything was great. Not not really truly the case in reality of what was it was more like out of necessity kind of a thing or, you know, being able to do business together and tolerate each other. But Vince <laughs> still wanted to kind of like needle him and like do weird things to him. And I remember this guy told me I won't mention, but he told me a story about how um, Vin, he was going to interview the warrior for the website, like his official like return interview for the company. And Vince, I guess, had got taken this guy aside himself or maybe sent notes to him uh-huh. and and specifically asked him to make sure he asked the ultimate warrior about distrucity. Do you know what distrucity is? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. About okay. his whole thing. And I think it was tied into his comic book. And we used to laugh our asses about it in the office. We would talk about distrucity all the time. He had this concept of distrucity. It's too hard to explain if you don't know what it is people listening just google it it was this bizarre thing the ultimate warrior came up with like some kind of like personal growth mantra or something and vince just thought it was ridiculous and he knew the warrior would get pissed off and he 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 put this writer up to it to ask him about it and apparently the story was that the guy is interviewing the warrior in one room and and the interview is going great and he brings up distrucity and the warrior just loses his shit and just gets pissed off. Like, what are you? What are you trying to? You're trying to rib me. You're trying to humiliate me. Blah blah blah. And apparently, like Vince was in the other room listening live on headset to this thing, just laughing his ass off because that was exactly the outcome that he was hoping would happen. And so, I mean, like, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if he would sometimes do things like that for his own personal amusement. No question in my mind at all. And there's another example of why wrestling is this unique art form where you have the CEO billionaire guy mm-hmm. who is getting an interviewer to ask a former wrestler about a made-up word that he made up while the guy also legally changed his name to his character. I mean, it's wild that that's mm-hmm. that, that, but it's wrestling. If you if you get it, you get it. And if you don't, I guess you're never gonna. There you go. That sums it up perfectly, better than I ever could. And and uh Similar to we used to say similar things to, to that. It's like you either get it or you don't get it. It's true. Um, well, Kenny, this has been really great. I mean, as you can tell, I could tell these stories all day, just endlessly. Kenny, you should book me for an inside the ropes appearance. I'd be happy to do it. We can get those 11 people. We give them a <laughs> hell of a show. The 11 people that would come out for that. It would be amazing. We will listen. I could, I, could te- I could listen to your stories all day. <laughs> well, thank you, Kenny. And I'm glad that you got to come on and tell some of yours, too. This was fun. Yeah, it was fun. I had a really good time. And yeah, people should check out, you know, you do, you do so much good stuff, your books and um, your articles. Um, and you're, you're a very good Twitter follow as well. So I think people should follow you. You're 
one of the only people who like because there's some people on Twitter. I'm not gonna name names. You mean you mean like, X, right? You're talking about X. X, X. Yeah, X. Okay. God, yeah. how, <laughs> sorry, I forgot about the new name. God's sake. Um, but there's like some people on Twitter and I'm or, or on X who are just like, so do you have any unexpressed opinion or any unexpressed thoughts? You don't have to. You don't have to tweet everything that you think. I know. I know. It's just exhausting. But. I know. My favorite thing is when people on uh, see. I got to stop myself here, but like you're right. People, <laughs> It just becomes this constant stream of consciousness thing. Like, I don't need to I, – I love when people on Twitter will just tweet something. And they do this on Facebook too sometimes. But on Twitter, they'll go like, oh, I'm, I'm going to – I have to run some errands. You know, I'll be uh, – I'm going to be offline for like a little while because, you know, I'm, I got some things to do. If you don't hear from me, you know, until tonight, don't be surprised. And I'm like, who cares? Hell, just the narcissism of imagining – that people are following your every move and breath and that people will wonder, oh, my God, uh, uh, Joe Blow has not tweeted for three <laughs> hours. I hope he's OK. Should, should we send somebody over to check on him? Like like Twitter has created this narcissism, which which I I combat at every turn. It's it's definitely no part of my online persona at all. So but yeah, well, people should people should follow you on X because it's a, it's a good follow. Yes. Well, thank you very much, Kenny. All right. Well, we'll talk soon. And, and thanks for being on the show. Appreciate it. There you have it, folks. My conversation with Kenny McIntosh of Inside the Ropes. And Kenny, thanks once again for being a part of the show. And I promise to continue to deliver my articles to your fine publication. And I promise to continue to talk about it here. But for now, I want to talk about future guests on this show because next week for episode 85, it's going to be one that I feel like I've been talking about forever and I finally found the opportunity to share it and it's going to be my conversation with Megan Baker Kelly, the daughter of Ox Baker, next week on episode 85 of Shut Up and Wrestle and keep listening in future weeks Got some good ones lined up and in the can. I have interviews with wrestling humorist and Arcadian Vanguard superstar Scott Cornish, as well as former WWF magazine writer Robert Bledsoe and Jamie Hemmings of Slam Wrestling will be coming up on the show. And as I said, I'm working on getting the granddaughters of June Byers for another future episode, as well as another from the archives episode that I have planned down the pike. So keep listening. You really want to subscribe to this show. Be a loyal listener if you are not one already. And if you are, just know that I appreciate you. Now, you can find this show wherever you find any podcasts that you love. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Podcast Addict, as well as our website, Pod. Dot com, And of course, I welcome you and invite you to join the community of the show at the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group. Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. Join the fun. Also want to make mention of some of my other work, the wrestling news. We just passed a full 365 days, a full year of daily reports without missing a single day. So what are you waiting for? Become a subscriber and listen every morning, five to ten minutes of your time. You can find it at thewrestlingnews.com. You can also find it on the Arcadian Vanguard YouTube page. 
Check it out. You will not regret it. My books, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic and superheroes, the history of a pop culture phenomenon from Ant-Man to Zorro. They are available wherever books are sold. You can also purchase, as I've said, autographed copies directly from me. Some of you already have. I still have some left. For any that might want one, reach out to me. I'm very easy to find. Also, the magazines that I write for. Inside the Ropes, as I have mentioned here exhaustively, InsideTheRopesMagazine.com, as well as Pro Wrestling Illustrated, which you can get at pwi-online.com. If you're looking for me on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, you will find me at Brian R. Solomon. You can get me on Facebook. My author Facebook page is Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author website on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that nod's as good as a wink with blind horse. So long, wrestling fans. I need your